Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 51, a new installment of Linguafile, wherein we discuss a mystery word or phrase with lexicographer Ben Zimmer. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Ben. Happy New Year's, boys. Well, thank you so very much, and same to you. Good to be back with you guys. Ben, is it Happy New Year or Happy New Year's? Well, you know, the descriptivist in me says uh, either one is okay. People very often put that apostrophe S on there. You know, it's clearly an elliptical form of either New Year's Eve or New Year's Day, and I'm fine with that. Okay. Just a note about our last episode, which was about the word grog. We got a number of emails from Australian listeners pointing out Mm. that the word grog is still very much in common usage there. They refer to alcohol stores sometimes as grog shops. They refer to liquor generally and beer, I think, too, as grog. And so it's really not a word that is kind of stuck in the age of, as I imagine, cod pieces and broadswords or even British naval ships. Yeah, it's fascinating how that happens. I mean, obviously, grog became a well-traveled word, not surprisingly, given its nautical origins. It's gone throughout the English-speaking world, and in places like Australia, yeah, it becomes just generalized as a term for liquor and takes on different meanings for different sort of alcoholic beverages in different places, I think. Perhaps in Australia, they just like the sound of it, grog. It sounds like a a good Australian word. Well, I've never been to Australia. I know... You have, Bob, but you told me that the two times, I think, that you were in Australia, you pretty much never left the hotel and you slept. (laughs) That's not entirely true. The first time I left the hotel long enough to climb the superstructure of that bridge over the Sydney Harbor, which was cold. And the second time, yeah, I was a little bit jet lagged. I was there for... A little bit groggy, you mean? I was a little bit groggy is what I was and forgot to take in, what do you call it? Australia. (laughs) All right. So, Ben, in this new year, 2015, our first Linguafile episode of this year, what is our clue? Okay. Well, last time, yeah, we had grog, and that was a nice short word, just four letters long. We're going to go with a longer word this time. This is a four-syllable word. Okay. So, four-syllable word. I'm going to need something more than just that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Casinos. I'd be amazed. Two four-syllable words. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's break it down. The first two syllables of this word sound like a childish word 
for poop. And the last two syllables sound like the first name of a first lady. I was going to go with Deuteronomy, but I, I ran out of... <laughs> <laughs> That's five syllables. Ran, yes, exactly. Okay, can we start with the poop? And I, I apologize in advance for the litany that this is going to generate, but you got your doo-doo, you got your poopy, you got your BM, you got your caca. How about cacophony? Uh, uh, well, um, hmm. Getting well, closer. Phony, that is not the name of any first lady that I know. Uh, phony Bird Johnson. <laughs> Cacophonous. Is caca the right uh, direction? That's correct. You have the first two syllables. Now you just need that first lady to finish it off. Caca, Nancy. Caca, Roslyn. Caca, Dolly. Caca, Dolly, Madison. Caca, Roslyn, Carter. Caca, Baba, Bush, Bush. Oh, my goodness. Caca, Jackie. Kennedy. Who came before? This could go 45. Oh, Mamie, Caca, Mamie. Kakamimi! Yeah, you got it. You both got it. That was team effort for sure. It I, I, was. That was another tie, I think. Oh, we should say for our listeners who are alive that Mamie is Mamie Eisenhower, the first exactly. lady of Dwight David Eisenhower, who was yes. whatever the 38th president. He preceded JFK. Now, I'm going to say right off the bat, before you utter another word, Ben, that the kaka in kakamamie might actually come from a root that means poo or shit, as I would probably call it. Although I do have a 16-month-old, so I'm probably more prone to saying poopy nowadays. Because I associate those syllables with the Yiddish, say, fakakta, which I grew up hearing all the time in my household, which I think literally means covered with shit or shit-covered. Mm. From that, I think there's some Germanic root that also pops up in poppycock hmm. as a term for bullshit. But maybe kakamami is altogether different. Bob, any ideas on cockamamie? I thought it was more of a C-O-C-K cock, which makes me think of two things, and one of them is a bird. And uh, I figured it had something to do with strutting male chickens. Cock-a-doodle-doo. And there you go. Wait, well, what's the other thing it makes you think of? Mamie Eisenhower. (laughs) (laughs) It's the love that dare not speak its name. So, Mike, you mentioned Yiddish in there. Does cockamamie sound Yiddish to you? Yeah, you know, it sounds like I grew up hearing a... What's that? It's Mm -hmm. got the rhythms. It does, yeah. And I grew up hearing a lot of Yiddish in my house. My mom's first language was Yiddish, and she spoke it generally with her parents if she didn't want us to know what they were talking about, or even if they were just talking because my grandparents didn't really speak English all that well, especially my grandfather, who was well into his 20s when he came here. So... It sounds to me like it does have the rhythm and the feel of a Yiddish word and mannerisms, I suppose, that go along with what I imagine are the mannerisms you employ when you utter Yiddish expressions. You do it Huntington, you do it Morgan. Ah, it's cockamamie. <laughs> now, do you actually remember hearing the word from either your parents or grandparents? Not specifically, no, I don't. I mean, I do remember, like I said, hearing fakakta a lot, and you know, there are any number of Yiddish expressions that I grew up it could almost be euphemistic. You know how, like, for crying out loud instead of for Christ's sake and gee whiz instead of Jesus Christ and, and so forth. Perhaps fracocta was so vulgar that it became softened by euphemism into fracocta main. Into shit-covered first lady. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. That's, <laughs> you're going to a dark, dark place. Who Mike? knew that Mamie Eisenhower <laughs> was a fetishist? <laughs> Oh, dear. Well, 
It does have that Yiddish sound to it, and it has a range of meanings, obviously. It can mean sort of confused or foolish, ludicrous, kind of fake, kind of absurd, kind of ridiculous. Meshuggah, in a sense, right? Yeah. Or Mishagas, which is the noun form of Meshuggah. Cra- which is craziness. Craziness, right. He walked into my office with his cockamamie scheme. You can make more money with a flop and with a hit. Well, you know, Yiddish speakers in New York in the early 20th century would have been familiar with this word. But it actually is a French word that got mangled in the process of being pronounced by young Jewish kids in New York in the early 20th century. Cook is chicken in French. Look, mm. look, right? Cook, C-O-Q. Yeah, but that's not it. It's not. That's not it. Hmm. All right, then just uh, rewind. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Good try, though. You know, there is a French word, uh, cock spelled C-O-Q, cognate with... Cock, C-O-C-K, in English meaning a male chicken, a rooster, but that's not the French root that we're looking for, for cockamamie. The mamie part is throwing me off because it feels like that's kind of tacked on. It feels like the caca and the mamie are two separate roots. Yeah, let me just go ahead and tell you where it comes from because you're never going to guess. The history of it is just so outrageous that you could keep guessing for hours and hours and you would never figure it out. So cockamamie, you might say. It is a little cockamamie. And you have uh, have also sent us on a fool's errand, right? (laughs) Indeed. Okay. So (laughs) as long as that's established, do enlighten us. (laughs) Okay, here you go. The French word that it derives from is decalcomanie. Now, this has been anglicized as decalcomania. It originally described a fad in the mid-19th century that started in Paris for a particular kind of ornamentation where you would affix what we would now call a decal onto a surface and uh, you could ornament just about anything with a picture by transferring it through this process. And the French root actually comes from a verb, décalqué, which means to trace, as with tracing O-M-G. paper. OMG! Ben, I'm having a yes. flashback to my childhood when uh-huh. these little decals, where you could put on your skin a, you know, an image of whatever, uh, Huckleberry Hound or whatever, we called them... Cockamamies. I thought it was Uh a brand name, but in fact, it's, you know, just a bastardized transliteration from the French. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. And it was in your memory all along. You just had to tap that memory. (laughs) Oh my God. You know, I've been in therapy for years and haven't gotten this far. (laughs) Is this going to be like Proust's Madeline? Are we going to unlock a whole childhood? uh... Evidently, in at least two (laughs) volumes. (laughs) <laughs> is this like a 50-minute hour, or can we go on uh, indefinitely? But what I want to know is, why is Huckleberry Hound still on your arm? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, liked, I took a shine to it, and it's now an actual, look, tattoo. It's Huckleberry Hound surrounded by what looks like a butterfly and a Chinese <laughs> character. That's not Chinese. That is a chai. Uh, I don't have a tattoo. Okay, (laughs) but you used to. That's the important thing. (laughs) The cockamamies of your youth were temporary tattoos that you could just stick on your arm. You might have to wet it with a little spit, maybe. Yeah. If that's in your memory. Well, we use sponge. Okay, fair enough. Wait, so just to be clear, it is not a brand name then? No, although because these decal-type transfer pictures became known starting in New York as cockamamies, that became something that would appear in advertisements all the way up through until, I believe, the early 60s. Which explains why I'm not familiar with it. Yeah, it's a lost art. 
Let's turn back the clock a little to the 1860s, even before Bob's time, and talk about Oh, the, now you too. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Good. All right. Well, we need to pinpoint the origin here, and that goes way back to the original mania for this process. So, decalcomanie, that many is like mania in English. It was this fad. It was something that everybody wanted to do. We can pinpoint it pretty accurately to 1862. There were already news reports filtering out of Paris that the great rage among the ladies of Paris just at present is decalcomanie. And what exactly was it that they were having decaled on their person or on their... I don't know, clothes. Yeah, well, it wasn't yet something you would do on your skin, like those temporary tattoos of Bob's youth. In the beginning, it was ornamentation for furniture, for pottery like china. Mm-hmm. Any hard surface would work. So it started there in Paris. Then it got big in London in 1863. And by 1864, it's spread across the Atlantic to the United States, and it becomes a fad in the U.S. as well, I guess, for people who weren't busy fighting the Civil War. I see. So it was an interior design technique, in a sense. Yeah, exactly. So here's a description of it from the May 1864 issue of The Lady's Friend. A friend called on us the other evening, and in the course of conversation, drew from his pocket a small bottle of varnish and some beautiful little paintings, flower groups, and other dainty designs and asking for some plain china cup or vase that we would like ornamented, proceeded to astonish us. A small paintbrush, dipped into the varnish, was passed carefully over the painting, which was then laid, varnish side downwards, upon the flat top of a semi-transparent white glass cup. Then, with an old soft linen handkerchief slightly wet, the paper was moistened and deftly drawn away, leaving the bright flower group as firmly set, apparently as if it always had been there, the whole operation not occupying five minutes. I love this breathless description of it as if it's magic somehow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it must have seemed like magic, I guess, in 1864. And this term, decalcomanie or decalcomania, originally referred to the fad for doing it, this process called decalque. And that, by the way, decalque comes from the word meaning to trace, Calc, C-A-L-Q-U-E, might be familiar for people who know some linguistics because it's also used to describe where you just translate word for word or morpheme by morpheme. So George Bernard Shaw translates uh, Nietzsche's Übermensch as Superman. That's called a calc because you're just basically tracing, you're kind of copying straight from the other language. Hmm. It originally goes back to a Latin word, Calx, C-A-L-X, which is the term for the heel. The heel bone is still called a calcaneus. So the idea there is that you would sort of tread with your heel. So that pressing down movement with the heel then got used for pressing down with tracing paper. From that, we got this term decalque in French. You add the mania at the end of it to describe the big fad for it back in the 1860s. But then it was called that just to refer to the process. What do you do when you are putting these pretty flowers on your furniture? You are doing decalcomania. And then the actual transfer pictures themselves got called decalcomanias. This was obviously a mouthful, a very long word, and it was difficult to pronounce. There are different ways that you could shorten it as it became more popular. And so, obviously, one way to shorten decalcomania is just to take the first two syllables, and you get decal. And, in fact, 
I've found that shortening going back all the way to 1905 in the trade journals like Glass and Pottery World would be talking about the special decals that were being made or decal sheets. Although the word decal as we know it doesn't really become popular till after World War II. And by that time, decals refer to something a bit different. Instead of these paper strips, you know, it's something made from plastic and you can affix it to your car window or to your model airplane or whatever. But it's interesting to go back to uh, those cockamamies of Bob's youth and consider exactly how they got that name and how that got extended to our current meaning of cockamamie. So you're saying that this was via some sort of New York Jewish mispronunciation? Yeah, all evidence points to that. You know, if you have that word decalcomania or decalcomanie, if you want to be French about it, the duh could just come right off and you could say cacomania. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that's one early variant. There are tons of early variants spelled in lots of different ways. Calcomania, cacomania, cacomani, cacomami. So what you're saying is, Ben, that you, you blame the Jews. <laughs> Well, I credit the creativity of uh, Jewish kids growing up in New York by taking this odd French-sounding word and converting it into something that fit into their own idiom and sounded good in the Yiddish-inflected English that they were growing up with in New York. It could have been my grandmother who was responsible. My grandparents, they came through Ellis Island in the 1920s and settled originally on the Lower East Side, as many Jews did on uh, Norfolk Street, according to my grandmother's passport. So, hey, maybe it was her. (laughs) Well, it sounds like she might have been a little late because the people who were first using it, or at least often it's sort of recollections from their childhood, were people who might have come over closer to the turn of the century. Hmm. So, one example is from Arthur Kober. Now, he was a, a humorist. He wrote a lot for The New Yorker. And he was very often writing about these sort of lightly fictional accounts of his upbringing in the Bronx and all the characters that were in his neighborhood. And he used tons of Yiddishisms or, you know, Yiddish or Yinglish, that sort of Yiddish-English combination. And for a lot of people, it was probably their first exposure to this sort of Yiddish-sounding English. So he'd have his characters say things like, fancy schmancy, that schma reduplication. Or you might say, uh, oh, that stuck-up Nick, you know, adding that Nick ending at the end. And he has a piece from The New Yorker that was published in 1931, reminiscing about a Mrs. Gittleson who had a candy store when he was growing up. And one thing that he says about the candy store, he says, then there were cockamanies. Okay, again, he's got M-A-N, cockamanies. Mm. Painted strips of paper you applied to your wrist and rubbed with spit until the image was transferred to your hand. It was an exciting form of tattooing, and there was quite a demand for them. You know, that schma reduplication that's associated with Yiddish, I recall uh, an acquaintance of mine, a shiksa, if I may, who was eating some kind of ice cream, and I was asking her if she wanted a spoon, and she said, ah, spoon, spoon, floon. I was like, wait, what? (laughs) And I I remember very clearly saying, wait, spoon, floon? Is that the Goyesha version of spoon, schmoon? You know... Leo Rostin wrote The Joys of Yiddish. There's another book called The Joys of Goyim Trying to Speak Yiddish. (laughs) And that it could be called Spoon (laughs) Flute. Well, Bob, 
Thank you for mentioning Leo Rostin's The Joys of Yiddish, because uh, he talks about it in 1968 in that book. And this is what Leo Rostin says. And, you know, he's a pretty good authority on this sort of thing. He says, I am informed by veterans of the Lower East Side that decalcomania pictures were called cockamamies because no one knew how to spell decalcomania. That's not as cockamamie a feat of etymology as you might think. So Leo Rostin gives that etymology in 1968. Also, interestingly, in 1968, William Morris, he was a lexicographer. He was the editor of the American Heritage Dictionary, the first edition of which was published in 1969. But in 68, he was writing a column with his wife, Mary, called Words, Wit, and Wisdom. And people would write in to ask him about, you know, origins of words. Somebody asked about cockamamie, and he actually said he didn't really know where it came from. Once that column was published, he said he received hundreds of letters from people who grew up in New York and said, well, cockamamies, those were the temporary tattoos that we were putting on us uh, when we were growing up. And in fact, the American Heritage Dictionary in 1969 is the first dictionary to actually include cockamamie. So it was a word that people were still trying to figure out in the 60s, even though the whole cockamamie phenomenon could be traced back decades before that. I just want to clarify, in case there's any confusion in the audience, that I did not grow up on the Lower East Side with the tweed cap and knickers and, <laughs> and play marbles in the streets and say, say, before I said anything. That was not my life. I grew up in suburban Philadelphia. We, we had automobiles and we lived, it was a one family in the house. I just, I did not grow up in a East Side tenement, okay? Mike? And also, just to be clear, Leo Rostin, who wrote a number of books, not just The Joys of Yiddish, about Yiddish and Yinglish. He is not a scholar. He is not a linguist. He That's is true. a popular writer of language, not to suggest that his etymological research is in any way incorrect, just to suggest that he was not a rigorous researcher of language. That's true. That's true. But, you know, he is reporting on, as he said, veterans of the Lower East Side, which were, who were explaining to him the connection between the cockamamie pictures and the word cockamamie. Wait, so have we established how cockamamie went from being these decals to a word that you would use to describe something that was kind of nutty and crazy? Well, you haven't gotten there, and that's a question that is still not fully answered, at least to my satisfaction, exactly how we get to that. Again, I blame the Jews. <laughs> well, yeah. Because it has a kind of onomatopoeic resonance with other Yiddish words yeah. to mean something that it now means. Right, right. And it actually shows up as both a noun and an adjective. The first example that's been found of the noun is in a play called Dead End by Sidney Kingsley that came out in 1935 about kids growing up in the slums of New York and their life of crime. It was popular. It became a, a movie mm -hmm. and the dead a end serial. kids. Yeah, exactly. Which is exactly the image that I was conjuring when I said that was not where I learned about cockamamies. Okay, Bob was not a dead-end kid. The dead-end kids eventually became the Bowery Boys. People might uh -huh. be more familiar with them, but they traced their lineage back to this play by Sidney Kingsley. And there was an exchange between two characters in that play. They're talking about a nice-looking girl that one of these sort of criminal types was with. The character says, yeah, I hear she's going to do a bubble dance in a boylesque, I think. 
And the other one says, Yeah, my father took one look at her picture, so he said he'd let him shoot him too for half an hour with a fancy floozy like that. So my mother gets mad, so she says they wouldn't have to shoot you. Half an hour with that cockamamie, you'd be dead. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> for Ladies and my... gentlemen, <laughs> the vocal style. The vocal stylings of Mr. Ben Zimmer. Wow. Well, the thing is, I'm impressed. He... <laughs> Sidney Kingsley wrote with the dialect spelling, basically, to try to, you know, Fada is spelled F A D D U H, for instance. Pitcha, P-I-T-C-H-U-H. Right, the New York equivalent of what Mark Twain did. Yeah, Sidney Kingsley grew up in this environment, too. He was actually born Sidney Kirchner in New York. Sounds to me like they were more like Hell's Kitchen West Side kids, not the Lower <laughs> East Side Jews. This is a tougher breed. <laughs> so the w- way that he spells cockamamie, C-O-C-K-A-M-A-M-E-E, is the first appearance we have where it's clearly no longer referring to those transfer pictures anymore. But Mm. it's being used as a noun. So the noun predates the adjective, at least in the current written record that we know of. Yeah, you know, we're still piecing this together again because this is definitely a word that people were speaking well before it was getting written down. And again, what year was this Kingsley citation? 1935. Okay. And again, because there's lots of different spellings when people did write it down, it's a little hard to search for in those databases because it could be spelled dozens of different ways, really. There wasn't one canonical form quite yet. Yeah, well, the way I, and I haven't seen that word in print probably in a long time, but the way I am picturing it spelled in my head is exactly the way you just spelled it, except with an I-E at the end instead of an That's E-E. Right. Sometimes it's also spelled with a Y at the end or E-Y. But yeah, the most common spelling is now M-A-M-I-E, just like Mamie Eisenhower as the spelling of the word. Right. The coprophiliac first lady, as we've established. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That's going to send me running to the dictionary, and I know I'm going to regret what I find (laughs) when I get there. It's what you think it is. (laughs) You know, interestingly enough, the earliest example we have for the adjective, the meaning that we now think of, is from a movie, is from movie dialogue. Woman of the Year, the very first Spencer Tracy Catherine Hepburn vehicle from 1942. I believe she was a career woman, was she not? She was a journalist. She was a foreign affairs columnist. Mm -hmm. And Spencer Tracy was another kind of journalist. He was a sports writer. So Spencer Tracy's character, Sam, is the type who would just hang out in a bar all day with the other sports writers. And the owner of the bar that he would hang out in... The character's name, Pinky Peters, was played by a great character actor named William Bendix. Oh, William Bendix. The Life of Riley. There was a TV show in the 50s, a short-lived sitcom called The Life of Riley. I think he was an exasperated dad. William Bendix, character actor. Yeah, yeah. He's he's, uh, best remembered for playing Babe Ruth in The Babe Ruth Story. Mm -hmm. But he would very often play these tough blue-collar guys from Brooklyn, inevitably, So he's the bar owner in the movie Woman of the Year, the bar where Spencer Tracy's character hangs out. And the first time that he brings Catherine Hepburn to the bar... Now, Tess Harding, he's telling me who you are. You write for Sammy's paper. I read your column all the time. I don't understand it, but I read it. Uh, (laughs) Uh, Is that from the right bottle? The best we have, sir. All right, don't give none of that cockamamie boss talk, you hear? No, no, sir. So apparently Pinky doesn't want the bar to serve Ms. Hepburn any of the bottom-shelf liquor, the well drinks, as you'd call it. Right, exactly. So in that meaning, cockamamie might mean of low quality, not very good. Counterfeit, maybe. 
Maybe counterfeit, right. And you could actually see how that might connect back to the cockamamies, those, you know, temporary tattoos that were circulating in New York among kids in the early 20th century. It's something that doesn't last long. It's something that might seem kind of foolish, especially if you have too many of them on. I'm sure that Bob didn't look foolish at all when he was wearing a Huckleberry Hound tattoo. It's something that's essentially a fake, right? Yeah. It's not the real deal. It's not the real McCoy. Yeah, it's real McCoy. That was another uh, sitcom of the era. It's about, about rural life with Walter Brennan. Well, you are a fount of information about early television. Fucking A. That was a show, by the way, with Alan Hale Jr. (laughs) (laughs) What, fucking A? Yeah. Yeah. I saw the pilot. I understand why they never picked it up. It got canceled immediately. (laughs) So so that movie from 1942 is currently the earliest that we have for the adjective cockamamie. For some reason, it feels unsatisfying to me that the earliest citation for the adjective form of cockamamie is from movie dialogue. I think it's because when you're writing a screenplay, you're writing for the spoken word. And by the 1940s, we already have a large record of the spoken word in radio plays. Well, if if we actually have, you know, nice archives of uh, radio plays from the 30s that we can check, that would be a great place to look. The Yiddish-inflected theater of the the 30s would be a great place to find this word being used. But again, a lot of it is retrospective. Another example of this, and this is the noun being used, there was a New York Times article in 1956 where they were talking to Shelley Winters, the great star, and she said, most of the pictures I made in the seven years I was a Hollywood star were like cockamamies. And then she says, I had a feeling someone would tap me on the shoulder one day and say, give me back the money. So she's talking about feeling like a fraud, Hmm. feeling fake. And she's comparing it to the cockamamies, I guess, that she remembers of her youth. And in fact, the New York Times gives an explanation for the readers who might not understand what that means, what Shelley Winters was talking about. This word, translated from the Brooklynese, is the authorized pronunciation of decalcomania. Anyone there who calls a cockamamie a decalcomania is stared at. (laughs) Stared at. (laughs) And I think that just the sound of the word helped people think of it as, it's this crazy word for crazy behavior or pointless or nonsensical actions and things like that. Because it sounds like, you know, some of the words we were talking about. It sounds like poppycock. It sounds a bit like cock and bull story, which is, you know, just a pointless, silly, nonsensical story. It sounds a little like cock-a-doodle-doo, sure. You know, other, other kind of fanciful words. Sounds a little bit like fakakta, which exactly. I remember one of my favorite uses of that word was during the O.J. Simpson trial. I don't know if you guys remember, but the judge who turned out to be very eccentric, his name was Lance Ito, he kept a series of timepieces on his desk. And I remember one time Howard Stern said, enough with the fakakta clocks. (laughs) So we can just say, if we were just giving the etymology of this word, cockamamie, an alteration of decalcomania. And that would be true from all the evidence that we have. And yet there's still a lot more, I think, to be told about this story. And I think the more that we look into those bits of evidence from the 20s and 30s, we'll find more exactly how that word grew into what we know it today. And to bring this around to where we started, it gives me an idea for a couple of nice French dishes. Cocomeme au vin and <laughs> cocomeme Saint-Jacques. They're a little crazy, I admit, and perhaps counterfeit, but um, 
I have no place to take this. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ben, thank you so much. My sincerest apologies to Mamie Eisenhower. <laughs> we have defiled and defamed her. My apologies. <laughs> yeah, mine too. If you want to reach us with information about Kakamami, please do so at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Lexicon Valley or subscribe to our feed in iTunes. Just search for Lexicon Valley in the iTunes store. Ben, thanks so much for a really fun episode and a great word, cockamamie. Ben, your column that will have more information about the word cockamamie will be up on the Word Roots column on vocabulary.com this week. And thanks to Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcast. All right, Mike, are we done here? Yeah, we are done. Happy New Year. Same to you, my cockamamie friend. <laughs> Later, Gator. So if you take this money and you don't deliver, you try to fuck me in some kind of weird cockamamie scheme of yours, me and my people are going to come get you and your people and chop you up into little fucking dog treats. You got a problem with that?